Here we stand, just days after a riotous mob thought they could use violence to silence the will of the people, to stop the work of our democracy, to drive us from this sacred ground. It did not happen. It will never happen. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Not ever. Some of the words of Joe Biden earlier today as he was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. So we want to continue this conversation. And Reggie Cicchini joins me on the line now, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, What's happening there now? Uh, So President Biden just left uh, Arlington National Cemetery, where he took part in a wreath-laying ceremony with uh, with Vice President Kamala Harris. Obviously, now he is the commander-in-chief. This was his first kind of chief duty uh, in that position. Uh, Also worth pointing out that the military uh, runs through the bloodline of the Biden family, so it was a poignant and solemn moment for the new president. They are now headed back to Washington, where he will take part in a small parade uh, walking down Pennsylvania Avenue before he kind of walks into the White House and get started on what will be day one of his four-year term. And it sounds like he's getting right to business on day one. He is getting right to business. Earlier today, he took part in a signing ceremony to deal with some proclamations and some very early executive orders, which is kind of uh, what they do in the moments after inauguration. But once the executive orders start coming out tonight, they are really going to set the tone for what the agenda is going to be for the next four years. He said to uh, bring America back into the Paris Climate Accord, to call for a climate summit in the United States, to end the Keystone XL pipeline uh, and get rid of the permits that were signed over the last four years. This is a man who ran on a climate agenda saying that he will work to uh, slow down climate change. And here he is ready to kind of put the pen to paper and start that on day one. Uh, Very celebratory uh, feeling and so many beautiful moments uh, throughout the the day and during this inauguration, uh, but can't help but notice also uh, extremely tight security given what's been happening, what happened earlier this month. What was that like? Well, I mean, look, you know, I was out this morning at one of the checkpoints just a couple of blocks away from the U.S. Capitol, uh, and it was an eerie feeling. There were zero people walking around. You had zero cars moving around unless they were an emergency vehicle. uh, And you just had these massive tanks from the National Guard uh, blocking uh, the streets. And this is a sight that you can see over and over again at the major intersections in and around the Capitol and around the White House. uh, And it has an ominous feel to it because of this looming threat following the siege at the U.S. Capitol a couple of weeks ago. The FBI the Secret Service still weary that something could happen. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but in the next couple of weeks, because the online chatter is still taking place in some of those darkest parts of the Internet. Do you think that's going to be the priority then? Or what do you hear from Joe Biden as far as uh, we're looking at it from Canada? So we know that he's talked about uniting uh, the United States, but also dealing with relationships with other countries, and one of those being Canada. Yeah, look, this is going to be a difficult task for Joe Biden. You're right. He is trying to unify a country. And he made a point today in his speech saying, you may disagree with me, but let's not let that lead to disunion. So this is a monumental task to try and bring together an incredibly divided country, uh, really pushed apart by the conspiracies and the lies and the divisiveness of the former administration. But we also have to remember that President Trump went with this America Alone uh, Act for the last four years, and it really broke apart those longstanding relationships with countries all over the world and including Canada. Uh, and, And we know that Joe Biden is going to have to work to try to mend all of those ropes that have been frayed. But with his cancellation of Keystone XL, this is obviously going to be a point of contention. We had uh, Canada all but on bended knee begging for the Biden administration to not do 
this. Uh, so this is going to fray the very early parts of this relationship. But at the end of the day, uh, these are going to be two countries that continue to work together solely because they are each other's most important partner. And just looking again at how things unfolded today, I know it was a very small group that saw President Trump, Donald Trump, leave the White House. And we just heard in that report at noon also that one of the traditions that or perhaps the only one that continued was that he did leave a note. We don't know what was in that note, but he did leave one for Joe Biden. He did leave a note for Joe Biden. We know that it was one of the president's aides that officially put it in the desk in the Oval Office. We also know Vice President Mike Pence left a note for his uh, successor, Kamala Harris, uh, at the vice president's office. Uh, so, you know, they are keeping on with tradition. And we did keep with tradition in the fact that a member of the administration was in attendance at the inauguration with Mike Pence sitting there watching uh, both members take the oath of office. Uh, president Trump not being there. It was an elephant in the room. But at the end of the day, that elephant kind of deflated because well, we anticipated and expected and knew President Trump wasn't going to be there. Uh, his presence simply didn't matter because Joe Biden really tried to pick up from that American carnage conversation the president started four years ago and simply tried to move beyond it by saying, look, this is what happened before. Let's change it starting now. And Reggie, just quickly before I let you go, I know it's a busy day for you. What happens next and how is the pandemic having an impact on how things unfold today? Well, look, the pandemic is going to be the biggest part of the challenge for uh, President Biden as he moves forward. Uh, we are going to see the first challenge come up when the Congress gets back to work because Republicans and Democrats are going to have to come to terms with this $2 trillion pl uh, plan that's been put together by Joe Biden to give money to states and local government to try and get vaccine rollout uh, moving better than it is right now. This is going to be another massive effort for Joe Biden, but he said from the campaign trail that he was going to try to end the crisis as quick as he could. He's given himself a 100-day timeline. We'll see if he can fall into that. All right, Reggie, thanks so much for your time. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Well, what does a Biden administration mean for the relationship between Canada and the United States? Let's bring in Colin Robertson, vice president and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He also hosts a regular Global Exchange podcast. Colin, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Jill. Uh, what do you think would be the first thing if you were uh, in Justin Trudeau's shoes? What's the first thing you would want to talk to Joe Biden about? COVID and how we go about recovery within our two countries, because our economy is so dependent on the United States, and our economy is not going to recover until the American economy recovers. And of course, that all hinges on COVID recovery. And I think there are things we're doing in Canada that we could be sharing with the Biden administration, because the new president's put that top of his agenda. He wants to administer 100,000 vaccinations in 100 days. We're proceeding as well. It would be better if we could proceed in tandem and sort of recover North America health-wise, because that will do a lot to uh, accelerate the economic recovery, which has done so much to hurt Canadians and Americans. Uh, do you think it's possible to do that in tandem, though, when we're getting vaccine from different areas and we do have different uh, programs in place to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are things that we, we, I think there are things we could, we can learn from each other, just as our Centers for Disease Control work together. You know, if nothing else, we should be thinking about what happens with the next pandemic, because we didn't handle this one very well. And we've taken the approach of putting a kind of perimeter, a security perimeter around North America. Well, that should also include a health perimeter. Uh, and I think, so I think there, and, and how we're doing things in each province, I think there are lessons we can learn from how we're doing it. There's also things that we've learned the hard way that we could share with the United States because ultimately, uh, we know we're all people and 
we depend on healthcare. I, I do think our healthcare system in Canada is superior to that of the United States because it's publicly administered and we reach much more people than you necessarily do in the United States. Uh, what about the issue uh, of China? And we've talked about this, and I know there are people waiting to see if a Biden presidency will mean anything for Michael Spavor and Michael Kovarig being held in China and for the Meng Wanzhou case that is continuing uh, here in Vancouver. Well, Joe, that's a very good question because, of course, it all stems from the U.S. request for the extradition of Meng Wanzhou, which Canada uh, proceeded with and, of course, led to the uh, seizing of the two Michaels, and then they're being thrown in jail for now more than two years. There had been talk, as you know, before Christmas, that the Justice Department in the United States, which is proceeding with this extradition request based on fraud charges as they've against Peng Wangzhou, was thinking of doing a deal with her. And if that were the case, then we would have to have an assurance, because in a sense, we've borne all the liability on this. We'd have to get an assurance from the Biden administration that if they were to decide to do a plea deal with her and drop the extradition request, which, of course, would allow her to immediately go back to China, that the two Canadians would be freed at exactly the same time. And it's touchy, isn't it? And I know you've written about this and we've talked about this in the past, that on the one hand, if we expect that Joe Biden is going to stand up to China, is going to take on issues such as human rights and such, you have to do that in a way that it doesn't reward China or or do some kind of deal to get our citizens back, but then puts our citizens at risk in the future. No, that's exactly right. And I, I do think that Biden... With broad support, this is one area where both Republicans and Democrats in the United States are like-minded. And I think increasingly in the West, there's a lot of suspicion about China because of how they behave through the COVID crisis and just their uh, saber-rattling with their neighbors within Asia, that there's a sense that China has pushed the envelope too far and there needs to be some pushback. And I think that Biden has said... Quite publicly, he wants to have a summit of the democracies, and one of the top items on that will be how do we deal with China collectively? Because I do think the collective approach of the West to China would would have some effect. And what about the issue of Keystone and the speculation that that will be one of the first things Joe Biden does is cancel that project? Well, he's been consistent, and of course, he was vice president in the Obama administration, and uh, during the Obama administration, they wrestled with the whole idea of giving the permit to Keystone, and Secretary, then Secretary of State Kerry was the one who refused to grant it. Of course, Mr. Trump, on his first or second day in office, did grant the Keystone permit, but Mr. Biden, in campaigning, was very consistent, no, I will rescind Keystone. Um, I think that's not a hill for us to die on. There are other pipelines. We've got 70 pipelines that crisscross our border, some bringing energy north to us, most of them bringing energy south to the United States. I'm, I'm afraid that while the facts may work to our advantage, this has become a highly emotional issue, particularly with the environmentalists in the United States, and they're a significant component of the Democratic coalition that elected Mr. Biden. So he's also, in a sense, rewarding a, a key group in, in the people that elected him. And so I think I think that's probably going to proceed. Uh, but this is never over till it's over because it'll now go into litigation. You know, during these last four years, even with the permit, 
the pipeline, I think, is only about 40% completed because they're fighting off litigation from environmental challenges in Nebraska and other places. The pipeline is actually constructed across the border. So some Canadians who think, oh, well, the border, it's had to do with the pipeline at the border. No, that pipeline is done, but it's it's the longer pipeline that's really at stake. I don't think we'll win on that one. I think we should be pushing hard on another pipeline, what we call Line 5, which brings has gone goes through Michigan and uh, provides energy to Michigan, but more importantly provides energy to Ontario and Quebec, about 40% of the oil that they use in the two provinces. And the governor of Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, has said she wants to close that. Well, that pipeline's been working extremely well since the early 1950s, so it's been in place for 70 years. That's one I think we should be pushing hard on, and I think we'd find more sympathy on that. Certainly, you would think we would get more reaction from at least Quebec if that was to happen uh, to the Line 5. Absolutely. I think, Jill, and actually, the the point there is, I think, we tend to throw stuff to the Prime Minister and say the national government should deal with this, but this is one that really could be dealt with by both the Quebec Premier, Premier Legault, and the Ontario Premier, Premier Ford, talking to their counterpart, Governor Whitmer, you know, I think back a few years ago when we had troubles getting people across the border, uh, then Premier Campbell in British Columbia spoke to the then uh, governor of Washington and worked out the smart driver's license so that people could come to the 2010 Olympics. I think uh, the more problems we can deal with at the, the regional or state-to-province level, the much better for Canada because we do have so much shared and often that's the level to which we should be trying to settle these things, not throwing it always up to the top table. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree. Uh, One question before uh, we we wrap up. What about uh, climate, being that Joe Biden did campaign a lot on climate, on emissions? What does that mean for Canada as far as carbon tax or working along with and being an ally to the United States? Well, I think you've just underlined it, Jill. That's exactly what I... I, My suggestion is that when Mr. Trudeau has his first long conversation, and we say long, it'll be half an hour, that instead of focusing on the kind of irritants, leave that to our ambassador and the premiers. Focus on the areas in the Biden agenda where we are in tandem and can work together, because then we'll make much more progress. So I'd start with COVID recovery, which leads you to economic recovery. And I would also include in that climate, because you know that the Biden administration is proceeding. Carbon tax is going to be a piece of it. You know, we're experimenting in Canada with different variations. British Columbia has got its own. They've had a carbon tax for a number of years. There are things we can bring to the table that the Biden administration will be very interested in. I worked in Washington for several years, and I've been dealing with the U.S. for 40 years, and they're always interested in what Canada can bring to the table. We sometimes forget that. We're actually highly innovative, but we don't always uh, take what we have have learned and experimented with Canada and uh, and share it with others, but it certainly is appreciated in the United States. So I think on, on climate... Um, there's a good story there for both Canada and the United States, and we should be working together on a kind of carbon tax because I think we're going to apply it, but we will probably apply it against Chinese goods because I don't think China has made promises, but as we know, they don't necessarily honor their promises. All right, Colin Robertson, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jill. Well, last week we heard from the Premier, John Horgan, saying he was seeking legal advice on whether or not this province could restrict travel from other Canadian provinces. Not talking about international travel, where there are rules in place involving quarantine, but restricting people from coming to BC from other provinces. And my next guest says that needs to be done to stop the spread of COVID-19. Kelly Lee is the Director of Global Health Studies at Simon Fraser University and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, what, where do you put the urgency or why is there urgency, do you think, in stopping interprovincial travel? Right. So I know that the Premier is waiting for legal clarity and these matters take some time and we really have a short window of opportunity to prevent what are what we're seeing are new variants of concern coming into Canada and um, spreading across the country. So they're already here. Um, and my understanding, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam has now said that she believes that it may be spreading through in communities in parts of Canada. So we have a very short time frame to stop it from coming into BC further and also spreading across uh, populations. Uh, do you think there needs to be a full ban on uh, traveling throughout the country or would it, could it also work if we brought in quarantine rules? Well, the problem is um, we, our quarantine rules are quite loose compared to some countries. So, you know, we rely on people to voluntarily quarantine and they may quarantine with other people. They may not do it at all um, and so on. So it's, it's a package of measures, not just one thing that we can implement. We do have to reduce the non-essential travel. That's happening still at a far higher level than we'd like. And people are just basically still doing it despite being advised not to. So there has to be stronger incentives not to do it or perhaps, you know, more stronger regulations. So we, we do need to do that. There is essential travel that needs to be still carried out. And we recognize that. And that needs to be managed again through quarantine, through far more testing that we're doing. Because what about a scenario where somebody is traveling, whether they're traveling to somewhere else in Canada or traveling to the United States or somewhere, and it is deemed essential, it's to help out with, say, aging parents, to help out with a family member who has a medical emergency and doesn't have family nearby. Somebody in that scenario would still have to travel. That's right. So, you know, if that's deemed essential, and, you know, it varies across the country, what is deemed essential? So that needs to be clarified to people. But if that's the case, then... They, if people who go out must come in and, and of course, quarantine. Um, and then they must be tested very um, thoroughly and tested multiple times because, you know, you, you can't always catch it the first time. And then if there is a positive result, they need to um, sequence that that um, that uh, sample very uh, with g- genomically to find out which variant we have. But beyond that, I mean, domestically, if somebody comes into the province, they are not quarantining. And so we need to really... In, in you know adopt that measure as well uh, people come into a country say to, to back to Ontario and then they decide to fly to BC they're not quarantining when they arrive here in the province so that that's a problem uh, people should not be coming for holidays that that's the the key thing I think the message and that's still happening and that that's very concerning is it the spread as well when you talk about community spread is it when we have somebody that arrives that doesn't know that they are that they have the virus uh, is it the community spread once they arrive and they start doing things or they're staying as you said they might stay with family members or they're in close contact with people because it does seem like we have other rules in place and again I, I suppose if it's someone not following the rules but you're not supposed to be going to social gatherings you're not supposed to be with people who aren't your household and you are supposed to be distancing and wearing masks and doing all of these other measures to stop the spread even if you do have it that's right we're not supposed to be doing a lot of things but they're still happening so we have to take uh, reality into account so people don't know that they have the virus oftentimes and though so they're acting in good faith Uh, we're also not testing everyone so you know there are cases where we don't know that uh, there are new variants in the community and that that's 
um, that's the problem. Um, and this, these new variants, some of them are, are far more transmissible, about 50% more transmissible than what we've been dealing with. And the problem is we've got to find balance between new infections and the healthcare capacity. So at the moment, we are coping. And, you know, we see the numbers every day and how many beds are left and so on and how many infections we're detecting. But the, what about the ones that are not being picked up? But also if that increases and gets into the community and it spreads, say, 50% faster, it, our healthcare capacity is going to be exceeded uh, far quicker than we can vaccinate people, for example. And we're seeing this in the UK. It, it's, it's, it's mayhem at the moment there. And and now if we're having community transmission of these new variants in other parts of the country, we're going to see, you know, this scenario play out as well. So we don't want this in BC. I think we really need to move quickly. So is it the new variants specifically then that have you concerned that those, if those get a grip in the community, there would be no stopping them? Because even given what we've been doing so far, and I agree with you, not everyone's doing it. Certainly people are bending the rules in many cases to fit what, what they still consider to be safe. But even with that, given what we've been doing, we're still a province with a population of 5 million people. Where And right now we have 4,300 active cases. It seems like what we've been doing has actually been working. We have 4,300 cases that we know about. Uh, you know, we have to remember that, again, we're not testing everyone. These new variants are, are a game changer because even if we keep stable and we keep the numbers, you know, stable and, and hopefully going down, continue to go down, that's all great news. But we have to also assume that we're not picking up everything. And when these new variants get a hold in the community, they spread very quickly. And that's going to overwhelm our healthcare system. So, you know, this is the, the concern that, that I think is alarming people now. And why we're, we have this petition that's gone to the federal government uh, today, actually, that is calling on the federal government to tighten up the international travel measures, but also interprovincially, domestically. You know, these, this, is, this is urgent, and um, we have uh, dozens of, of scientists, public health people, clinicians signed on to this petition, pushing the government on both levels to act now because we, do, we don't have a lot of time, and we're already seeing concerning signs that this, this, these new variants are here and they're starting to spread in a way that will lead to the same scenario that we're seeing in other parts of the world. Uh, do you have confidence that could happen, though? Because even when the Atlantic provinces tried to do that, it ended up in a court challenge. Yeah, that's still, you know, it's under uh, appeal. Um, the first decision was that they, they did have the right to to restrict um, incoming uh, travelers for, a, it's a, we're in a public health emergency. So, you know, the, the, the reasoning is, is there. Whether there are other measures we can put in place to achieve the same thing, um, that, that's the big question. But, you know, as, as these things play out in court, in the meantime, you know, it may be too late. By the time we get a, a firm decision, whether it's um, legal or not legal or which part is legal, um, there, this is a preventative measure. We don't want to be in that situation just waiting and seeing what happens and figuring out what works. I think we have an opportunity to prevent this, this from happening. And, and, you know, let's figure out the, you know, what is... Um, specifically uh, aligned with law later on. <laughs> let's, let's, let's do this now. We have, you know, a, a, a week perhaps to figure this out. I think the, the legal challenges are going to take a lot longer. All right. Kelly Lee, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill.
Well, we haven't talked about the Boeing 737 MAX 8 uh, very much recently. There have been a few other things that have been top of mind. Plus, not many people are traveling, at least not for leisure these days. But for people who do need to take domestic flights and choose to do that, they could soon be boarding a Boeing Boeing 737 MAX 8. And our show contributor, John Jang, has more about that. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. Tomorrow morning is going to mark the first time a Boeing 737 MAX 8 will fly in Canadian airspace since March of 2019. Transport Canada officially lifted the ban on this aircraft earlier in the week, and the flight tomorrow is set to take place by WestJet from Calgary to Vancouver. It's a controversial decision that's been opposed by the families of the victims who perished on Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302. 24-year-old Danielle Moore from Toronto was one of the victims on the Ethiopian Airlines flight, and her father, Chris, actually spoke with Global News reporter Ross Lord back in December. Well, the best possible outcome, I think, is uh, for, for Boeing to come to their senses and say, you know what, we can't, we can't continue with this charade. We're going to pull the plug on the, uh, the MAX. It's not going to happen. Despite public scrutiny, neither Boeing nor the individual airlines have made the decision to pull the troubled aircraft from their fleets. And joining us now to examine that decision is Jarrett Vaughn, uh, adjunct professor in the Marketing and Behavioral Science Division at the UBC Souter School of Business. Jarrett, we just heard Chris Moore's comments on the 737 MAX 8 and how he would ideally want to see Boeing pull the plug on this plane. They have obviously decided against this, and I'm wondering... Is this a purely financial decision that might be a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? We know the industry and Boeing itself has seen some major losses over the past year. Could they afford to pull these planes in any other scenario? You know, John, I do think that COVID-19 certainly had a big impact on this decision, but my perspective is a little bit different than uh, what you just presented. I think that um, this is an ideal time for Boeing um, to to get that plane back into um, working order with the public because right now most people aren't flying and they're not thinking about flying. And so uh, it may be a headline today or this week, but there's going to be much bigger headlines on taking over the story tomorrow and the next day due to uh, COVID-19. And also um, they'll be able to say once travel gets back to normal or at least the masses start traveling again, they'll be able to say that you know, for the next, for the last year, the last two years, this plane has been flying uh, just perfectly fine, and um, and all of you have been locked down and, and and haven't been experiencing it. But there's been a, a certain percentage of the population that's been using it, and everything's been going great. That goes into my next question because on the issue of consumer confidence and consumer trust. It seems like Boeing and some of these major airlines that are using the 737 MAX 8 are going to have to convince the public that the plane is ready and is as safe as possible. And for a company like Boeing, where consistent performance is critical to the success of the business and the well-being of their customers, what is that going to be like? Certain people are definitely concerned about safety more than others. And I think that, um, you know, society at large does agree that like air travel is generally safer than driving your car or something like that, right? And that's what, that's a stat that we hear. Um, but, but I do think that uh, Boeing does need to build consumer confidence, uh, certainly. But I don't think that a lot of consumers really look at the actual plane they're flying on when they book. I think price is a far bigger concern to consumers than the safety of the actual plane. And I know that sounds like a, a little bit crazy, but, um, you know, most people, that's what they're looking at. They're looking at, you know, price and then maybe how convenient is the flight, uh, the actual airplane itself and the safety record of that airplane 
is far down on the list of what consumers are really paying attention to when they're purchasing an airline ticket. We know the travel industry has been struggling, and as a result, there's probably a lot of flights available right now, domestic and international, that are far cheaper in price than what you would normally expect. So I guess what you're saying right now is that this is a very advantageous position for Boeing because they can use this soft market to get as many of these planes in the air as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Boeing may incentivize um, Air Canada and other carriers to use the plane um, in on safe routes. Uh, conservative route so that they can uh, look at a track record next year and say, hey, this plane has flown so many thousands of passengers over the last nine months, and, and here's a safety record. We've had no incidences or issues. And, and that puts together a case study for the consumers to understand that, okay, this, this plane is okay. And, and, and I think that um, certainly Boeing and Air Canada and other partners around the world are probably working together to ensure that that is the case. I'm wondering if this is a situation where even if a minor technical issue shows up with the 737 MAX 8 moving forward, one that doesn't necessarily lead to loss of life and maybe just sends one or two of these planes into the maintenance hangar, there's going to be instant knee-jerk reaction with people ready to jump on this and talking about how we knew this would happen. The plane isn't ready. It's not safe. How does Boeing respond to customers who may never be able to place that level of trust in their planes and maybe in the company again. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that, as you kind of referenced, if there is another issue, uh, that may be the last opportunity that Boeing has to get this plane um, in the minds of the consumer. What they may do in that situation is move that plane um, to airline carriers uh, in developing countries where uh, this this uh, information may not be as um, reported as we might be hearing here. And so, uh, you know, they may make a move like that in order to deal with this, but they certainly only have um, probably no more chances to make this right. And there certainly is a, a part of the consumer population that they don't trust uh, corporations uh, no matter what is happening anyways. And so when they say the flight is safe, uh, these individuals probably are going to choose not to fly anyways uh, because they just don't believe that the corporations are right and that flying safe in general. Now, before we let you go, in a hypothetical situation, if you had to get on a flight this weekend and you learned that your flight was going to be on a Boeing 737 MAX 8, would you confidently board that plane? I would, but I don't value safety like a lot of people do. And so I personally think that if uh, the organizations have approved it and said it's okay, then I'm probably okay with taking the risk. Uh, but I don't think that I'm representative of probably the majority of the population at this point. I think a lot of people still would like to see the plane flying safely before they would get on it. All right. He is Jarrett Vaughn, adjunct professor in the Marketing and Behavioral Science Division at the UBC Sauter School of Business. Jarrett, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate chatting with you.